The message today is entitled Biblical Church Governance, the Call, Qualifications, Roles, and Responsibilities of the Office of Pastor. And it's not 1 Timothy 3.1, it is actually Acts 20. So disregard that reference, that's my fault. It's Acts 20, verses 17 through 38, and we'll get to that in a bit. Last Sunday, we took a look at the qualifications and roles and responsibilities of the office of deacon. You remember we had the opportunity, if you were here, you remember we had the opportunity to uh, affirm and install four of our men to that office. And I hope that day was as much of a blessing to you as it was to me. Uh, today, we're going to begin to look at the office of pastor Understanding that is a, a word in the New Testament that is synonymous with the terms elder, overseer, and shepherd, all of which have the same function, all of which have the same qualifications, all refer to the same office. So the goal is to examine what the Bible has to say about the call, about the roles, about the responsibilities, qualifications of this important office in the church. So much research out there, so many books. In fact, some of you gave me books on this. And I want to acknowledge the contributions of Benjamin Merkel, David Platt, John Piper, Mark Dever, and Larry Nelson. And listen, as I suggested last week when we looked at the, at, at the biblical office of, uh, of deacon, I really want to take a fresh, biblically-centered look at this topic. I want us to set aside all of our preconceived notions, anything that would hinder us having us saying something perhaps like, well, you know, we've never done it like that way here before, that kind of mentality. And my goal is for us to just, just to let the Word speak to us where it has something to say, which is so important when it comes to getting on the same page as a family of faith in everything that we are and everything that we do. We want to hear what the Word has to say. So if you happen to have your Bible with you today, and I trust that you do, would you open it to Acts chapter 20? Again, we're going to, get the, we're going to read that first, but then we're going to have a little parentheses before we get actually preaching through the text. What we're going to do is explore a, a fundamental truth that would be our foundation through today's journey and the next time we, we meet when I speak on this topic through God's Word. And this truth is going to be a guiding principle throughout our discussion, and here it is. Adhering to a biblical model for church leadership is vital for the church to reflect the glory of Christ. Would you read that out loud with me? Adhering to a biblical model for church leadership is vital for the church to reflect the glory of Christ. Now would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Again, Acts 20, beginning in verse 17, reading through verse 38. Now from Miletus, he that is Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city 
that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Remember, he's talking to the elders. To care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease to admonish, to cease night and or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how He Himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the words he had spoken that they would, never, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Father, we uh, remember from our study this story of your servant Paul And the sacrifice that he had given to be faithful, to proclaim your gospel, what an example for us. As we look at this text today and try to draw from it your truths about leadership in the church, we pray for your Holy Spirit to move. Pray for you to help us recall and understand and in the coming days and weeks and months apply what we learn here today. And we pray all this in the strong name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. So before we dive into Acts 20, I want to identify six principles rooted in Scripture that I suggest are fundamental and ought to be at the forefront of any discussion about church governance. And listen, we're just going, this is a little bit different sermon, we're just going to see how far we can get today. We get to a good stopping point, we're going to stop, okay? That may not be quite as soon as you think, but I still, get to, I still get to make that call. But wherever we stop today, we're going to pick back up there on November the 12th. Next Sunday, Dale Ingram is going to preach in my absence. So first principle. We talked about this last week, but it's so important. We need to reiterate, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Paul writes in Ephesians 5.23, Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is himself its Savior. He writes in Colossians 1.18, Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow and builds itself up in love. So Jesus Christ is the head. He nourishes the body, the church, meaning that the church is not just another corporation. We're not just another organization. We are an organism. You've heard that before. We are a body. We're not merely human because our head is Christ, and the life He gives is supernatural. So the church is not to be governed then like any other human organization. She should be organized and have practices that, that set her up in a way that allows Christ to govern and to lead and to care for His church. Jesus is no dead prophet, nor is He some mythical idol. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is alive and is at this very moment on His throne at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and for me, preparing to one day return in all the fullness of His glory. Beloved, this... This is who leads the church. This is who leads Richland Baptist Church. This is the one who is the leader and the sustainer of the church, his body, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then a second critical principle for us to understand when it comes to church governance is that all the member of Christ, all the members of Christ's body are priests and ministers. Speaking to you, speaking to you now, Peter wrote this. This is for you, church. 1 Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. John, also speaking to you, wrote, He loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Beloved, the New Testament knows nothing of the priesthood of the clergy. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, verse you're familiar with, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. So we all have the privilege of going directly to God through Christ, not through professional priests, not through Mary. Every Christian is a priest under Christ. And every Christian is a minister. That word minister does not define the office of the pastor of a church. I often think that our sign out in front of the church should say, ministers, all the people of RBC, assistant to the ministers, Richard and Scott and, and Travis, Dale. This word defines what I do. It defines what you do. Ephesians 4.12 says that pastors and teachers exist to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So you are all ministers. Say, I'm a minister. We are all, you are all priests. Say, I'm a priest. And then another foundational principle that follows is that under Christ, the local congregation is the final authority in the church. Now, I'm not saying that the congregation is above the Scriptures because the Scriptures are the word of Christ. We submit to Christ by submitting to His word in Holy Scripture. Nor am I saying that the congregation is above the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. We submit to Christ 
by submitting to His Word and to His Spirit. What I mean is that under Christ, His Word and His Spirit, the congregation, and not the pastors, and not the deacons, is the body that settles matters of faith and life. This is not only implied in the priesthood of all believers, that passage I just read for you, but it's illustrated in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, where the church is the last court of appeal in church discipline. You know this passage. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So the church, the congregation is the final arbiter, the final court of appeals in matters of church discipline where decisions about church membership are made. Arguably, the most basic authority in the church under Christ, who can be and who cannot be a member. And this shows that the congregation is the body, as a body, is the final authority in the local church. Doesn't mean that the church shouldn't form associations and fellowships for mutual encouragement and for guidance and Ministry. It only means that the local congregation decides its own matters under the Word and under the Spirit of Christ. So then Christ is the head of the church, and therefore the members as a congregation are the final authority under Christ, that is, under His Word and His Spirit. A fourth principle is that God calls some members of each congregation to feed and lead the church as servants of Christ and His people. In other words... Even though there is absolute equality before God as children and heirs and priests and ministers, some, not all, are called by God to lead the church. For example, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. In Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as men who will have to give account. 1 Thessalonians 5.12, Paul writes, We beseech you, brethren, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Then first we read earlier, again, Paul, excuse me, Luke speaking to the elders of Ephesus, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. So the church, the congregation under Christ, under his word and his spirit uses its authority to recognize and affirm leaders whom God calls. And then the church puts those men in positions of leadership and, and voluntarily supports those men by learning from their teaching and by allowing them to lead. Now, I get that on the surface, they, this may sound a, a bit like a contradiction. To have an authoritative congregation submitting to leaders whom it puts in place. But it isn't a contradiction. It isn't a contradiction because there's a great difference between leadership that motivates and models and mobilizes and proclaims and persuades and points the way in ministry and mission and the corporate 
authority of the congregation that places doctrinal and moral parameters around that leadership and holds those leaders accountable to serve for the good of the church. Congregational authority and strong biblical leadership under that authority are not incompatible. They are biblical and they are vital. And then fifth, there's clear teaching that the early church was led by men referred to as elders, as in plural. The point here is that leadership by multiple elders, pastors, synonymous term, was not merely one authoritative form of leadership in the early church. It was universal, as far as we know. There was always more, and there was always more than one elder in each church, as far as we know. I want you to hear these texts to show how widespread this practice of having elders was in each church. In Jerusalem first, Acts 15, 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men and to send them to Antioch. Again, Acts 20, verse 17. And from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. All the towns of Crete, Titus 1, 5. This is why I, Paul, left you in Crete, that you might amend what was defective and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. All the churches to whom James wrote when he said to the twelve tribes of the dispersion, and then in verse 14, 14 of chapter 5, is any among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then all the churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, to whom Peter wrote, 1 Peter 5, 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. And finally, all the churches founded on the first missionary journey of Paul's, presumably on the other journeys as well. Acts 14, verse 23, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. So the universal extent of elders in the early church is obvious, but it becomes even more obvious when you realize, that, again, that that term elder is the same office, the same person designated as bishop or overseer, and pastor. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where elders are given a, a shepherding function. It's hard to escape the conclusion, beloved, that God's will for the local church is to have a group of elders as its primary leaders. And then a final principle. The function of the elders was to feed and to lead. Or to say it another way, the elders are responsible for teaching and governing the congregation. As leaders, they give guidance, they give direction, they provide soul care to the church. As teachers, they, they oversee the, the life of the church to preserve its biblical faithfulness. They are then guardians of the word. First, or excuse me, Titus chapter 1, verse 9 says that the elder must hold firm to the sure word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to refute those who contradict it. The elders are the trustees, the pastors are the trustees of truth and the life of the church. And, and they are governing overseers. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well or govern or oversee or manage be considered worthy of double honor 
especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there's a clear diversity of function among the elders. All elders must be able to handle the Word of God correctly and be able to recognize false doctrine and be willing to correct error, but some labor especially in preaching and teaching, the Word tells us. So to sum it up, Jesus Christ is the head of His church, All the members of Christ's body are priests and ministers. Under Christ, the local congregation is the final authority in the church. God calls some members of each congregation to feed and lead the church as servants of Christ and His people. The early church was led by men referred to as elders, and the function of the elders was to feed and to lead. Early on in the discussions that I had with the pastor search team before I was even considered to, be, to serve as your pastor I shared with them a deep conviction I shared with them the deep conviction that I have about the importance of studying and submitting to what the Bible has to say about church leadership to help me to help all of us come to understand more clearly the roles and responsibilities of those called to lead the church additionally I've spoken about this topic with the deacons with the pastor accountability team, with the other pastors on the staff. I've written about it. Of course, I've spoken about it from this pulpit before. I have begun to see, rather than a single man leading the church in the traditional role of, quote-unquote, senior pastor, the need for a multiplicity of pastors individually and collectively committed to the mission with which Christ has entrusted us a group of leaders accountable to God, accountable to the church family, and accountable to one another. Men strengthened by their varied giftedness, men bound together by their passion for Christ, men motivated by their love for the church, men seeking to glorify God in all things, and who are committed to leading the church in glorifying God. How did I get there? A careful examination of God's word on the subject along with almost four decades of pastoral experience in both small and large churches, experience that includes many of my own leadership errors, and then a newfound passion to see Christ's church led well in these perilous times in accordance with Scripture. That has led me to this place. And I suggest to you, church family, this is important for us as a church going forward. We, that is the church, stands at a critical juncture in a chaotic time in our culture. Our mission cannot thrive without solid biblical leadership. There need to be individuals who define and defend and direct the mission, ensuring that we stay on course, undistracted from our purpose, the mission of expanding the kingdom by reaching the lost, making disciples, and glorifying our Father by the way we live our lives. I suggest to you that biblical leadership is key to this endeavor. If we're to be a dedicated force armed with the Word of God, impacting lives from Richland to the ends of the earth, engaging in meaningful, eternal, kingdom-growing ministry for the glory of Christ, then biblical leadership is an absolute necessity. In Acts chapter 20, we're closing in on a conversation that Paul is about to have with the elders in the church in Ephesus. You probably remember that the first time 
Paul journeyed there. He stayed for three years preaching the word before moving on. He didn't serve as an elder there. The word tells us that he appointed others to serve as elders and, and to lead the church. So now it's been a few years, and Paul is returning to Ephesus, and he wants to meet with those elders, verse 17, and spend some time with them before he journeys on to Jerusalem with the offering he had received for the church there. The first thing I would point out from this passage is just how close of a relationship that Paul had with these men, how important that relationship was and how critical their role was for leading the church at Ephesus. And as we look at this text, we see four responsibilities for pastors. We're going to get to two of them today. The first one is that elders lead under the authority of Christ. A bit redundant here. It lines up with the foundational statements about who's the head of the church. But again, so important, we need to make sure we have this. In Acts and the, the following New Testament letters, we see that one of the first things that happened in a new church was the appointment of elders, plural, to lead the church. We see elders mentioned in Acts chapter 11. Paul and Barnabas are tasked with taking the offering from the church in Antioch to the elders in Judea. In chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are busily establishing churches. And then look at verse 23. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders, presbyteros is the word used there, for them in every church, and with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then in chapter 15, it's time for a critical decision to be made. In verse 1, we read, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now remember what a kerfuffle this caused between Paul and Barnabas and these men. And then we see Paul and Barnabas appointed, along with some other believers, to go to Jerusalem and bring this matter before the apostles and the elders. And in verse 4, we see they're welcomed by the apostles and the elders. And in verse 6, we read, the apostles and elders were gathered together in this matter. Looking down at verse 22, same chapter. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So clearly, elders, pastors, were intricately involved in important matters in the early church. They were the leaders in the church. In chapter 16 of verse 4, we read, And they went on their way through the cities. They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. And the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers daily. I suggest to you solid biblical leadership played a role in that. So, no doubt, in the New Testament, elders are a group of men who were leading the churches. Going back to chapter 20, verse 28, another key word that is used interchangeably in the New Testament for elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Episkopos is the Greek word used there. Again, synonymous. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we, we, read about, we read about the qualifications of elders. It's right above that passage we studied last week about the qualifications of deacons. 
And we know that the terms of elder and overseer are synonymous because in Titus 1, we see the same qualifications listed for elders. In fact, if we look at Titus chapter 1, verse 7 and verse 9, we see the same term is used to describe overseers and elders, which give a picture of men who are appointed by God, who have the overall leadership in the church, leading under the authority of Jesus Christ. And again, when the term elder is applied in the context of church leadership, it is always plural, a group of elders leading the church under the authority of Christ. Now, when we talk about being under the authority of Christ, again, we need to understand the church has the final say on who serves in the capacity of elder, pastor, we looked at Matthew chapter 18 earlier where we see the church has ultimate responsibility when it comes to deciding someone is to be put out of the church or not as a disciplinary action. In 1 Corinthians 5, we see something similar. Paul warns there of the church tolerating sin with the effect that is hurting the church. He's admonishing them that the church is accountable for that. And we see more of it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul pleads with the church to reinstate a brother who had fallen. And in Galatians 1, where Paul warns the church about allowing someone to come in and preach a gospel contrary to the one that he had already had delivered to him. So it is Christ as the head, and then the church leading according to the Spirit and the Word, and then men called and gifted by God, appointed to the office of pastor, elder, overseer, shepherd, all the same, by the church, who then serve the church as leaders. Men who, in Acts, 8, Acts 20, verse 28, which we read earlier, are said to have been made overseers by the Holy Spirit. So this is not a popularity contest. This is not a talent show. The Holy Spirit calls these men. The church recognizes that calling and affirms God's appointment for them to lead the church as pastors so that it's the work ultimately of the Holy Spirit pastors belong in a sense to the church and the church belongs to Christ so then pastors are appointed by God and they're accountable to the Son of God look at verse 28 again Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, notice the shepherd sheep imagery, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church that he obtained with his own blood. You think about that phrase, beloved, obtained or bought with his own blood. We gather here today as blood-bought believers, a community held together by our common faith in Jesus Christ. We're here only because Jesus Christ shed His blood in payment for our sins at Calvary, paid the debt for our sins. And among other blessings, and there are many, that means He paid for us to have the opportunity to experience the joy of worshiping together here in this place and of being a part of this family of faith. We've been bought by the blood of Christ, beloved, and that means serving as a pastor leading this church any such church is a colossal responsibility not to be entered into lightly because those men who serve in this capacity are accountable to a holy God and the care of the body that he purchased 
with his own blood. Jesus is in control of his church. He has all authority. And any man who serves the church as a pastor is ultimately accountable to him. They lead, but under the authority of Jesus Christ. And then elders care for the body. Another term, term we see used with elders and overseers is there in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. So I exhort the elders, presbyteros, as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd, here's that word, poimaino, poimaino, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, eagerly, not domineering over those in your flock, but being examples to the flock. Again, that word translated shepherd is used, oh, it's a word used for pastoring. So elders are responsible for leading the church under Christ's authority and for caring for the church, for providing pastoral care. The shepherd sheep imagery is intentional. Shepherds were common in that time. You know this. Of course, shepherd's not a glamorous job, wasn't a glamorous job. It's a job which called for humble servanthood, and this shepherding imagery actually gives us a true picture of what Paul's trying to say about this office of pastor. It's a humble position, it's not a position meant to make you famous in the church, and it's not an easy position. Wild animals, sheep prone to wander, sheep often fearful, sheep easily distracted. Shepherding's not easy. Done well, it is, a hard, it is hard work and dicey. After all, sheep sometimes bite. Now, our culture in recent times has flipped this one somewhat on its head. That's the influence of the culture over the church. But biblical pastoring is not meant to be a position where one prospers himself or gains fame or builds an empire. Paul says, shepherds, pastors, care for the body of Christ, for you pastor over the body of Christ, the Word says. So truths we can take away here. First, clearly, pastors care for the flock of God. Pastors nurture the flock that has been entrusted to them as they serve in this office of elder pastor, as they lead the church. For Travis and Scott and I, that's what we're supposed to be about. That's one of our duties as pastors of RBC, caring for the flock. Now, what does that look like? And the New Testament reveals numerous examples of this kind of ministry. In James chapter 5, we read about the elders of the church being called together to pray over those who are sick. If anyone is sick, let him call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Holy Spirit. So then prayer is one of the ways pastors care for the flock. And then the ministry of the Word. One of the roles of the pastor is to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Titus 1.9, in 1 Timothy 3.2, Paul tells us that one of the qualifications of the pastor elder is to be able to teach. And certainly part of that passage that we looked at earlier in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 3, where it exhorts elders, pastors to shepherd the flock, the intent is that the, they would faithfully feed the flock 
with the Word of God. Now, there are many in our day who say to pastors, the Bible is no longer relevant for people in this age. People don't want to hear that stuff. Nobody wants to hear what the Bible has to say. It's lost its power. People no longer care about what it says. It's so much more helpful to talk about five ways to make your dollar go further or ten ways to be a better parent. So there are some, not all, praise God, but some who have moved away from expositional preaching, from teaching through books of the Bible, verse by verse, from preaching the unadulterated Word of God, perhaps from fear of running folks off or perhaps in an attempt to attract new folks. Beloved, the pastor's job, the job of the leaders in the church, is not necessarily to give the flock what they want to eat, but to give them what they need to eat, the Word of God. I love you, Richard and Baptist Church. God has done that work in me. Not that you're not a lovable bunch, but God, God has caused me to love you. And I know Travis and Scott feel the same way. And we want nothing more than to care for you by meeting your needs as best we can. And the best way we can care for you is by proclaiming to you the whole counsel of the Word of God. And hopefully, touch your heart with its power and convince and strengthen your mind with its truth and its relevance. We looked last Sunday at the role of deacon. We saw that the Word teaches us that these are godly men who have been given the task of serving the church in practical ways but needful ways, freeing up the leaders, the pastors, the elders to work on the task that they've been assigned by Scripture, prayer and the ministry of the Word. That's what pastors are supposed to be doing according to Holy Scripture. So here's where that idea I had of you erasing from your memory bank any kind of preconceived notions about who pastors are and what pastors are supposed to do. Having a multiplicity of elders, as we saw existed in the early church, as many churches have turned back to today, having a group of elders, pastors, who lead together is not about having meeting after meeting after meeting done right. The pastors would be spending quality time on their knees every day for the church and for the members of the church and for their ministry and for their own personal holiness and multiple hours every day studying God's Word in preparation for caring for the flock by feeding the flock the Word of God. That's the picture Luke paints for us in Acts 20 and Paul and Peter in 1 Timothy and Titus and 1 Peter. Men called of God, gifted by God, called and affirmed by the church, under shepherds, accountable to Christ and to the church, tasked with caring for the flock, which includes protecting the flock. Look at what Paul says in verses 29 and 30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Paul's telling the elders of his day and the pastors and elders of this day, look out for the flock. Protect the flock. There are forces bent on destroying the church. And part of your job, elders, is to protect the flock. Now, we're aware of the early church 
endured. It was horrendous by any measure. Pressure and temptation to turn away from Christ and the gospel. Offered the opportunity to recant or to die. But then Paul warns of the potential for adversaries to come from even within the family. Challenges to the ministries and the mission of the church. And surely we don't face the kind of opposition that the early church faced. We're not facing unfair imprisonment. We're not facing great deprivation or death yet. But whether you want to believe it or not, beloved, there is a real spiritual battle going on in the world outside the church and too often within the church. And pastors have a responsibility to protect the flock and to guard the flock and to care for the flock and to feed the flock that is the church. And they protect and guard and care and feed the flock under the authority of Christ, who is the head of the church, who is the chief shepherd of the church. And they protect and guard and care and feed the flock, understanding that the church, as guided by the Spirit and the Word, has final authority in the church. And there's much more to be said, but this is a good stopping point. I know you want to say amen real loud. I am going to be away next Sunday. Dale Ingram is going to be preaching in my place, but I'll be back in the office on Monday, November the 6th. I'll be back in the pulpit on November the 12th where we'll pick back up in our look, in our look at church governance and the role of pastor elders. Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking to us through your holy word as you always do. Thank you for clear, insightful teaching we see in your word about what is the role of pastors in the local church. What is the role of the church under the authority of your word and the spirit of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Father, help us to, to nail down these truths in our mind as taught in Scripture. May we be a church Father, that understands the importance of biblical leadership. A church ready to move in to the next decade and decades beyond with strong biblical leadership. We're thankful, Father, for what you've done in this church in decades past, for what you're doing in this church right now. We rejoice at the many baptisms. Father, we long, we, we long to see more. We pray that your spirit would move in the hearts and minds of those who are here today, perhaps those who are at home listening over their computers, Father, that they would turn from their sin and turn to you and follow your Son in the obedience of baptism. We'd see even more enter these waters. We're thankful for the many that you have brought to be a part of Richland Baptist Church in recent months. We recognize this as the work of your spirit in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.